Welcome to Sojourner True. Thank you for joining us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. I traveled to Philadelphia for an international gathering entitled End Women's Poverty, a guaranteed care income for all caregivers of people and planet, which took place June 9th to 11th, 2023. Participants hailed from 12 countries, as well as several cities, rural areas, and indigenous lands in the United States. The multiracial event marked the grand opening of the Crossroads Women's Center, which is based in an impoverished area of Philadelphia. The center hosted the event. According to the press announcement, the gathering was a rare and exciting opportunity for women and all genders from across the United States, as well as from England, India, Ireland, Haiti, Malaysia, Peru, Scotland, Thailand, and more to come together to build and consolidate the movement against poverty, which in the United States and around the world disproportionately impacts women and children. Today, you will hear presentations from Vijay Kumar, who is a key advisor for agriculture and corporations to the government of Andhra Pradesh, India. He focuses on organic farming and in particular, soil regeneration. Also, Shafika Hashish from the program manager of the National Guaranteed Income Community of Practice at the Economic Security Project, and Peggy O'Mara, the former editor of Mothering Magazine. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Christina Onestead. Congress is barreling the U.S. towards a government shutdown with four days left to avoid one and House Republicans at loggerheads over government spending. Far-right Republicans are demanding cuts to crucial benefits, including food aid and funding for Ukraine. The House is expected to vote on a package of government funding bills today. Senate Democratic Leader Chuck Schumer has said they will reject proposals with steep budget cuts. A group of bipartisan senators are also working on a plan for a stopgap measure. A government shutdown would mean air traffic controllers would be asked to work without pay. Some 7 million people in the WIC Women, Infants and Children program, including half the babies born in the U.S., could lose access to nutritional benefits and other government aid programs would be delayed. President Joe Biden is scheduled to join striking auto workers in Detroit, Michigan today. The United Auto Workers Union marks day 12 of a strike that spread to 20 states at 38 plants for the big three automakers, Ford, GM and Stellantis. Monday, Biden reiterated his support for the strikers. I think the UAW gave up an incredible amount back when the automobile industry was going under. They gave everything from the pensions on it. And they saved the automobile industry. <clears throat> and I think that now that the industry is roaring back, they should, that they should participate in the, in the benefit of that. And I can take a look at the significant increase in salaries for the executives and growth of the industry. They should benefit from it. His visit comes after Republican Donald Trump announced he'll visit striking UAW workers Wednesday instead of attending the second Republican debate. United Auto Workers Union leadership has said a second Trump presidency would be a disaster for workers, citing unfavorable rulings from the nation's top labor board and the U.S. Supreme Court during Trump's presidency and his unfulfilled promises of automotive jobs. Striking writers have stopped picketing after reaching a tentative labor deal with Hollywood 
Hollywood studios. The Writers Guild of America board votes on the labor deal today. It was announced Monday with the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers. If approved, it would go to full union membership for a vote. After nearly five months on the picket lines, the details of the deal have not been made public yet. 11,500 writers went on strike over issues of pay, the size of writing staff, and control of the use of artificial intelligence in script writing. The agreement comes five days before the strike would have become the longest in the Guild's history. The union is encouraging writers to join actors on the picket lines who are still on strike with no deal yet on the horizon. They have similar demands. New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez is rejecting calls to resign after a corruption probe Friday that accuses a Democrat of accepting nearly half a million dollars in cash, gold bars, and a luxury car in exchange for using his position as chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee to help Egypt and New Jersey business associates. He since resigned as chair. The AP's Sagar Magani reports. Prosecutors say FBI agents found nearly a half million dollars in cash in Menendez's home. Now, this may seem old-fashioned. The senator says he kept the cash on hand for emergencies and because his family used to fear its assets being seized in its native Cuba. These were monies drawn from my personal savings account based on the income that I have lawfully derived. In announcing the indictment Friday, prosecutor Damian Williams noted the cash had some tie to Fred Davies, one of the three businessmen from whom Menendez is accused of taking bribes. Some of the envelopes of cash contain Davies' fingerprints, Davies' DNA. Sagar Magani. President Joe Biden is hosting a Pacific Island summit at the White House with island leaders. Today marks day two. Monday, he announced he's recognizing the island of Niue as a sovereign and independent state and made a plea to Congress for nearly $200 million in new funding to address issues like climate change that threatened the existence of some island nations. Christopher Martinez reports. Biden made several more announcements, economic agreements, academic student exchanges, new U.S. embassies in Tonga and the Solomon Islands, and the return of the Peace Corps to Samoa, Fiji, Tonga and Vanuatu. He also announced the first U.S. Coast Guard vessel dedicated to training with Pacific Island nations. He says he's launching, in consultation with Congress, $200 million in new proposals. In particular, he announced a $20 million boost in climate assistance, calling the climate crisis a key challenge for the island nations. I want you to know I hear you. The people of the United States and around the world hear you. We hear your warnings of a rising sea that would they pose an existential threat to your nations. We hear your calls for reassurance that you never, never, never will lose your statehood or membership of the UN as a result of a climate crisis. Today, the United States is making it clear that this is our position as well. Reporting for Pacifica Radio News, KPFA, I'm Christopher Martinez. I'm Christina Onestead, reporting for Pacifica Radio. Those were our news headlines, and today we bring you three very varied presentations from the international gathering that was held in June of 2023 that focus on ending women's poverty. First, you will hear from India-based Vijay Kumar. He will discuss how soil regeneration and natural farming is being successfully used to empower women's farming collective in Andhra Pradesh, India, and attacking poverty as well as the climate crisis. Then you will hear from Shafika Hashish about the growing movement for a guaranteed income in the United States. And finally, from Peggy Omara, the former editor of Mothering Magazine, about an international survey entitled, What Do Mothers Want? Let us go now to hear from the award-winning environmentalist, India-based Vijay Kumar. And also I would like to uh, really spend some time on the role of women, uh, the women collectives, women champions, women heroes in leading this process. So it's a program of the women, uh, for the women, and more important, by the women. Uh, so this is uh, uh, quite clear that the what we are doing is basically learning from Mother Nature 
And DD explained very clearly the role of the microbes, the soil aggregates, the nutrient cycling. Uh, basically, all this is what we are learning from uh, Mother Nature. And so I believe, and this is something which, you know, repeatedly Walter has been, Walter Yena has been telling us that Mother Nature is perfect. We need to learn. So what we are doing in Andhra Pradesh uh, is basically trying to understand Mother Nature and uh, learn the critical principles from that and take it to uh, farms, farmers, small and marginal farmers. So based on last seven, eight years of our work on ground, and also learning from Walter Yena, very eminent scientists like uh, Christine Jones, Elaine Ingham, learning from DD. So based and learning mostly from our farmers. We have looked at what are those principles which we can take to uh, farmers. And the first and foremost is to keep the soil covered with crops 365 days of the year. And as Didi showed in her slides, the root exudates, the interaction between the root exudates, the microbes, the minerals is really the essence of life. So, so the maximization of photosynthesis is critical and that happens when you keep the soil covered with crops. The second principle being diverse crops are essential 15, 20, more than that. Also include trees wherever possible. Then third principle is to keep the soil covered with crop residues, uh, especially when living plants are not possible. And minimum tillage, minimal disturbance of soils. And what we are beginning to understand is the importance of farmers' own seeds rather than seeds purchased from the market and that indigenous seeds are preferred. So this is a new knowledge and our farmers are very enthusiastic about this integration of animals into farming. And then the role of biostimulants as catalyst to trigger soil biology and pest management, which is such a uh, serious problem everywhere. But in our case, we deal with this in a very holistic manner both through better agronomical practices and, uh, if required, botanical pesticides. The last principle is on a negative list, which says that no synthetic fertilizers, pesticides, herbicides, weedicides, essentially no biocides. So these are the nine principles. However, the practices are very diverse from within the state, from region to region. Uh, but all of them encompass these principles. So crop diversity is uh, very important. So throughout the year, farmers keep diverse crops and one season after the other, the, the cropping pattern changes. So we have a lot of emphasis on crop geometry, you know, what should be the border crops, intercrops, trap crops, relay crops. So this is very knowledge intensive agriculture. And this is the role of biostimulants. And they're very important, very critical to the entire natural farming program. So this is where the seed is coated with a biological inoculum. This is called bijamrut. So it's cow dung, cow urine, lime, a bit of chemical-free soil mixed with water, fermented for 12 hours. And this liquid is uh, sprinkled on the seeds. Uh, this is, uh, you know, uh, for uh, applicable for all the seeds. And this is a solid inoculum, which is also made from uh, cow dung, cow urine, molasses or jaggery, lentil flour, and handful uncontaminated soil. It's mixed, fermented for five to seven days. And then it has a shelf life of three months, six months. So this is basically applied at the time of sowing. So initially the farmers used to broadcast this 
but then, uh, you know, we learned from Walter how important bioinoculum and seed are. So we now apply this along with the seed. Then there's a liquid inoculum, which is applied when the plants have germinated. So alternately, either to the root zone or used as a foliar spray. Uh, and then when the you know crop is at a flowering stage, there are different kinds of uh, biostimulants to promote uh, you know better flowering, better fruiting. And then for uh, this another very important innovation triggered by learnings from Walter Yana. So this is for dry sowing, you know, so that we are not dependent on the rainfall, not dependent on the monsoons. So we can sow anytime. So this is a very new innovation being used only for the last three years. So this is a seed pelleting, pelletization, and it's very easy. You know, everybody, our farmers can learn it very quickly and can do it. So the seeds are coated with the, as I mentioned, the seed, seed inoculum, seed treatment inoculum, bijamrit, powdered clay, then powdered ganajivamrit, and finally with ash. And in between water is sprinkled. Once you do this, you can sow the seed in dry soil and the seed is viable for three months, four months. So whenever there is a shower, the seeds germinate. So this has great, uh, you know, it's a game changer in the, in those fields which are dependent on, uh, which are rain fed. So farmers are able to complete their sowing even before the monsoon. So that they're not wasting even a single drop of rain. And uh, this is again another uh, recent practice of uh, mulching, uh, covering the you know soil because the seeds are there. The pelleted seeds have been uh, put in this soil. And farmers, uh, you know, depending on the kind condition of the soil, they do it once or twice or three times in a year. And this is uh, biopesticides, botanical pesticides made from whatever leaves are locally available. We have more than 200 formulations. Uh, so as you can see, uh, you have crop diversity, you have uh, crops 365 days of the year, and then you have a biological, uh, I would call it a biological armor, right from seed treatment, then at the time of sowing, after germination, during flowering, fruiting, and if there's any pest attack. So there's a very close uh, relationship uh, between the, the soil microbes and the plant growth. And these are all the triggers or catalysts to enable a better relationship between the uh, microbiome, soil microbiome and the plants. And this is a very important process, but our farmers uh, learn this quickly, uh, but the knowledge increases uh, you know, with uh, practice. And that's why I say this is not input intensive agriculture, but knowledge intensive agriculture. Uh, this is the scaling up. We started with around 40,000 farmers in 2016-17 uh, in 700 villages. You know, in the year that closed now, 22-23, we were able to take this to close to 900,000 farmers. And we are now present in 27% villages of the state. 14% farmers of the state are in this transition movement, and uh, we're covering an area of 6.3%. So this is a very rapid scaling up, and uh, we do understand that a farmer's transition takes three to five years, and there's no, we don't offer any cash incentives during the transition, and neither do we make any promises that farmers will get uh, market premium after the transition. 
And you must also uh, remember that 86% of our farmers are small and marginal farmers. So our idea is to take this to all the farmers in the state and in the next eight or 10 years, take it to all the 6 million farmers and 2 million landless farm workers. And in terms of results, you know, unlike, you know, people saying that there's a yield penalty and then there's a threat to food security. So we do this uh, independent crop cutting experiments to compare uh, fields with natural farming and fields with conventional agriculture. And on this side are our major crops, paddy rice, groundnut, cotton, red gram is a lentil, chilies, ragi is a millet, and tomatoes. So these top five crops are, in terms of area, very significant. Paddy accounts for 40% of the area, groundnut for 11%, cotton is 13%. So all these are major crops. And uh, you can see the most of them, the yields in natural farming are higher than the conventional agriculture. The cost of cultivation is uh, reduced in all the cases and the net incomes are significantly very high. So this is for the Kharif season, that means the rainy season. And the second season, the winter season. You can see the results are similar. So economically, there is no penalty. Farmers get uh, better results uh, in terms of uh, investments and the net, ret net returns on that. And this is very, very important. We find that uh, water requirement in uh, agriculture comes down. So natural farming, this is a very large scale study of our uh, best practicing farmers. This is not the average. These are our best practicing farmers. And they are reporting around 50% reduction in water. Uh, now we have posed it for external independent studies to look at this and tell us what are the, what are the savings in an, on an average. Uh, then the crops are more resilient to flooding. And this is a example of uh, where uh, farmers are able to take crops throughout the year through what we call as 365 days green cover. This is a woman farmer. She's also self-help group member and also she's a master farmer. So she's a trainer. She trains other farmers. So this is her uh, rain-fed land. And uh, as you can see, this is, she did the sowing in summer, hot summer, April 2021. And germination happened in one week because there was a pre-monsoon, there was a uh, rainfall before the monsoon. She has sown 22 kinds of seeds. And this photograph is in uh, hot summer in May. And there are no crops anywhere. And this is her vegetable crop in February. And this is a resilience through this kind of farming. As you can see, she's getting income from about 14, 15 crops. And she's getting income throughout the year. And this is completely unheard of. Because normally, you know, farmers get income from one or two crops. And in, in this uh, district, it's a semi-arid district, rainfall of 450 to 550 millimeters. So even getting one crop is difficult. Uh, however, she's got uh, three crops. The income that she has got is at least five to six times higher than her uh, farm, than her neighbors who are practicing conventional agriculture. And the farming, you know, natural farming crops are more resilient to pest attack. So as you can see, you have uh, economic returns, resilience returns, and then the, you know, what you can see here is improved biodiversity. We see pollinators coming back, birds. 
then uh, earthworms. So you have uh, benefits to the farmers, to the soil, to the environment. Farmers uh, see greater resilience to excess rains or lack of rains. But next couple of slides are essentially on uh, on the how we have taken this knowledge to farmers. How could we scale it up so uh, so rapidly? So we call them as our uh, critical pillars of uh, scaling up. Uh, government support is very important, and uh, this program is led by government. But but government in partnership with people, in partnership with women's collectives. So that is the role of government to work with people, provide the resources, and also, uh, you know, do the monitoring program management. Knowledge, I already discussed the various principles and practices, but we continuously learn. You know, we feel that there's so much knowledge which is uh, being generated in uh, by the farmers, knowledge being generated outside. What we have learned from Walter Yena is uh, enormous. And uh, again, we have partnerships with the World Agroforestry Center, University of Reading. And uh, in USA, we are working with the Tufts University, Woodwell Research Institute, to look at the uh, impact and also to learn from other places. So knowledge is very critical, but knowledge which is in harmony with nature. But at the ground level, in terms of implementation, in terms of leading the program, inspiring us, the role of uh, women, the women self-help groups and their federations is critical. And uh, I think there's a session later on by Swati on how this uh, women self-help group movement originated in Andhra Pradesh. But I just want to say that this is something which is about 25 years now and 90% women in uh, rural areas of Andhra Pradesh are organized into women self-help groups, federations of women self-help groups at the village level, next level federation at a higher order, mandal samakhyas, and then at the district level. So this is an incredible force which is, uh, you know, leading the program. And then the farmer-to-farmer extension system is another critical pillar. So when I started the program, we had, uh, you know, I had picked up around 800 to 900 such champion farmers from across the state. But today I have developed, the program has developed, nurtured uh, 10,000 champion farmers. So from now onwards, every year I'll be able to, we'll be able to generate, uh, you know, 5,000 to 10,000 such champion farmers. And each champion farmer is responsible for 100 farmers so that they they get this hand-holding support that is required in making the transformation. And the other pillar is a facilitating organization to make this happen. So government plays this role. There are civil society organizations, but most important of them are the women self-help groups and their federations, farmers organizations. And the sixth pillar is collaborations with global and national institutions, scientific experts. This is the women, uh, uh, women power in the villages that we are working. So close to 2 million women are uh, working with us in around 8,000 village federations, 200,000 women self-help groups. So these women's collectives do multiple things. They are responsible or they take the leadership for program management. They work together. So collective action, learn from each other, they prepare plans, and most important is they take care of the most vulnerable. So that's a you know norm in the group that whoever is most vulnerable needs to be supported, and that makes it anchored, makes it rooted to serve those who are who require it most. And you know this is a training in a women's self-help group. 
again one more training this are they are preparing the inputs the biological inputs together as a meeting where they are you no know, doing their savings and loaning operations this is a farmer field school and then we have a strategy for the landless poor so homestead gardens uh, more than 230000 such uh, landless uh, poor households have come together to improve their nutrition levels through these uh, nutrition gardens we are also working to improve uh, the returns from this and to enable them to take more area on lease to their women self help groups we also have a very important program this is right now a pilot in about uh, 130 villages where we are focusing on uh, you know uh, pregnant women nursing mothers and mothers of small children so that they eat chemical free food during pregnancy and then when they're taking care of the children so we have uh, you know young professionals living in the villages with the farmers uh, with working with the women self help groups promoting nutrition gardens a farmer nutrition school they run campaigns they partner with schools with preschools to ensure that uh, you know most vulnerable groups are able to get uh, chemical free and nutrition rich and diverse uh, food items so the food basket uh, has more than uh, 4 to 5 food groups so we have the village federations vo means a village organization or village sg federation so every self help group has two health subcommittee members who then look into you know what kind of food are we eating what changes are required so as i mentioned the pregnant women nursing mother and uh, mothers of children up to 3 years so they are called 1000 day is a technical term 1000 day beneficiaries uh, so this is the support that's being extended to them in terms of nutrition counseling nutrition nutri gardens then uh, you know preparation of different recipes so this is a very important intervention because we are finding tremendous uh, improvements in the health of uh, women uh, health of children you know when they are born and even the mental development because the mothers are aware that uh, you know the children should not I mean, they and the children should not consume any food with pesticides or with any chemicals and this is a intervention very close to my heart and then as i told you the farmer heroes are central to the program and we have 10000 such uh, farmer heroes and they have very high credibility because they are best practitioners and they are speaking from their experience they are able to do troubleshooting ah uh, this is a very important slide just to show that you know this is the something that doesn't happen overnight typically in our village we have close to 500 farmers 450 farmers and our idea is to you know during the project period say about 8 years 10 years we should be able to convert 85% farmers uh then that enables them I mean, that any case uh ensures that remaining people change so when we enter a village our idea is to cover all farmers also cover the landless poor those who don't have any don't have any lands and work with them you know so that all practices are implemented because in the first year they learn certain things and uh, they get some result but some other farmers have got better results so they try to understand what is the you know what is the problem with what they have done so next year they are able to put in more uh, practices so like this is an iterative process and as i told you we have a lot of research studies on natural farming and this will be you know continuous and we are setting up a academy 
for agroecology research and learning. This is uh, supported by government of Germany and also by state government and government of India. And the idea is to develop capacities of uh, farmers. So we're initiating a program called a farmer scientist program. Why can't we recognize the fact that every farmer is a scientist? We're going to take a short station break. When we return, you will hear from Shafika Hashish on the growing movement for a guaranteed income and from Peggy Omara on the results of the What Do Mothers Want Global Survey. They were all speakers at the End Women's Poverty Gathering that was held in Philadelphia in June of 2023. any part of this hour from 10 this morning for 90 days after that just go to kpfk.org scroll down to archives click on sojourner truth you'll be able to hear the show in its entirety and you can also hear the show check us out on soundcloud we had heard nationally as well as worldwide just look for sojourner truth with margaret prescott and today i'd like to give a shout out to our soundcloud listeners um in the United States, in the city of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and internationally, our SoundCloud listeners across India. Uh, we will now hear presentations on the movement for a guaranteed income by Shafika Hashish with the Economic Security Project and Peggy Omara, former editor of Mothering Magazine on What Do Mothers Want? Global Survey. They both spoke at the End Women's Poverty Gathering held in Philadelphia at the Crossroads Women's Center in June of 2023. Hi, everyone. Like Margaret said, my name is Shafika Hashash. I'm really so excited to be here. I am, you know, with the Economic Security Project, which has been running this guaranteed income community of practice just for about two years now. But I am also a mother to a beautiful 16-month-old baby boy, and I am a Palestinian, and I am also blind. And the mix of these is what's really shaped my fight for economic justice more than any uh, nice policy job title. But you know, the, the paychecks, they help. Um, so I do want to spend a second just discussing what the Guaranteed Income Community of Practice, for short, the GICP is. And it's this slew of policymakers, academics, program staff, even funders, anyone who wants to make guaranteed income reality to come together in community, learn from one another, and grow the movement from, you know, the grassroots. But really, it's also the space because we know that there are some good allies in government and nonprofit and all these folks, but we got to get them together and we got to get them actually on the right page, like Margaret's saying. Um, it is some 500 organizations. There's another slew of about 100 mayors. They have an entity called Mayors for Guaranteed Income. And you know, of course, in the United States, guaranteed income is rooted in the civil rights movement. And you've heard a lot about that today. But this community of practice, these 500 organizations strong, way more people than that. This has all just happened in the last two years, you know, of course, spurred by the COVID-19 pandemic. So I was asked to share just some thoughts on the state of the movement. And um, it's great timing because I literally just flew here from Chicago where there was a movement conference. So good, good timing. So I really got some state of the movement on the mind right now. 
Um, but I do want to say that this is also, it feels a little wrong for me to sit here and give this movement update as though the movement isn't here in this room, in the grassroots. But what I can provide is at least the state of the pilot movements, those folks who've been testing guaranteed income across the U.S. and the policy, um, which is still important and which we know the grassroots heavily influences. They, they always come after the grassroots. So to start, I was inspired so much these last few days spending time in Chicago with all these organizations and there are these folks because uh, direct cash as a right for carers was no longer this fringe argument on the margins. It, it really used to be. It was, oh, direct cash for the working poor, you know, all of these things. But it for carers um, was this fringe idea, especially not that government folks were getting behind. And it just isn't that way anymore. And that's so much uh, thanks by, you know, grassroots organizing. Over the last few years, there were these pilots that were started across the nation. There's now 130 of them in red states, blue states, purple states. For my non-American folks, that means conservative, democratic, and those in the middle. And some ones that I just want to name are things like the Abundant Birth Project, which focuses on pregnant women and their transition postpartum. Because like Selma James described earlier, the freedom to also have children and to raise them in equity is also a right. There's the Magnolia's Mother's Trust, which was the first ever pilot. And it, believe it or not, was actually in Jackson, Mississippi, for black mothers in public housing. There's the Mothers Outreach Network in Washington, D.C., building power, as the name suggests, for mothers. And this is just a few of them. I mean, I, I could list so many more. But the point being uh, that I'm trying to make is that the U.S. movement really is seeing the fundamental importance of, you know, paying cared work a guaranteed income. So we say right now that our movement is at this stage of pilot to policy. It's a phrase everyone really likes to use, pilot to policy. And how do we get guaranteed income into, a, into local policy that will then level up into national policy? Um, how do you make sure that mothers, parents, grandparents, those caring for elders are really centered when that does happen? And for us, this is in our coalition building, but in our also in our narrative and message shaping, as well as working with organizations to make sure that people are leading campaigns. There's so many policy wonks, you know, oh, they're, they're toiling, they're important, we love them, they help write the budgets, you know, it's good work. Um, but the people need to be the ones having the power, leading this work for them to really help us implement. And so some great examples of this just in the last year, there's been some beautiful, beautiful history, but I also want us to be inspired by what's going on in this moment. Um, and so in Hawaii this year, there was a week of action called for by moms. It was called Moms Deserve the Credit, where grassroots, uh, as you can imagine, folks focusing on mothers, were doing work for direct cash in the form of the child tax credit. So money going back in the hands of parents. In Illinois and New Mexico, and New Mexico tripled their child tax credit this year. It is immigrants. It is immigrant women fighting for their communities, including the undocumented who are always left behind in these types of policies. And they make sure that they are included. Colorado's got a pretty unique example where the Women's Foundation leads a lot of their work, but their grassroots base is so much of disabled community. And so it's so great seeing these folks come together and then having policymakers write up policy that they're working on. You know, when we're building up cash messengers or, or we call them champions a lot, um, we also are making this big concerted effort to make sure that uh, there's this beautiful mix of care providers, of, you know, different folks, so that this message isn't just shared in this NGO and nonprofit space, but it's really reflected by society. Um, so one of the biggest things is also making sure that they're spreading a similar message. You can't have folks all going off saying different things that they're, uh, 
you know, fighting for. Some of them are counter to one another. So we're really wanting folks to spread the same message of dignity, of your formal employment isn't what's important, of them focus on uh, that cash gives people decisions that'll best work for their families. And, you know, something I'm always really sure to emphasize is this doesn't just mean that cash lets you meet your basic needs. That's obviously important. We do not, you know, we need a lack of poverty. We need folks to have the ability to pay rent and electricity and food. But we use this phrase, cash is care. And the message that we like to, the message we like to spread is uh, we say it's more than just a check to say that people also deserve uh, to go get their nails done and to eat ice cream and to have less stress and to take a damn vacation because, you know, the wealthy, they don't just have housing and electricity. They go on vacations and they go on really nice vacations where they get to rest. And cash gives people the dignity to actually take that breath and to have that rest. I'll tell you something else, you know, um, when we are fighting for policy, there are three things that are always said. It's one, this is going to be really hard. It's so hard to distribute cash to millions. Number two, it's going to be so expensive, so expensive. And then number three, which are lovely, more liberal folks, you know, sometimes shy away from, but everyone ultimately says is, but what are they going to do with the cash? You know? Um, AKA people are undeserving. And you know, the pandemic showed us in fact that the government in the US could mass distribute cash. They did it with an expanded child tax credit cash every single month per child, you know, given to families. They did it through expanded unemployment insurance. They did it through stimulus relief. They did it through businesses, you know, the, the PBP loans. And God knows that's a whole discussion in itself. Um, but the second one with regard to cost is it's going to cost what it's going to cost. It is expensive and it should be expensive because people deserve the money. Um, and if we have the funds for immense wealth cuts, then we have the money for people. But these are always the distraction to the bigger one. Number three, which is what are they going to do with the money and they're undeserving. And this is the one where this narrative page of freedom and stability of, you know, the ability to thrive, getting the grassroots, the government, the nonprofits on board, that power is what's going to kill that narrative. Now, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that the movement's got it all figured out. Uh, I wrote this lovely 10-year roadmap that all these organizations are looking at and using, and it's really, it's a lovely roadmap. Um, but, you know, am I about to sit here and tell you that, yes, Shafika's roadmap, that's it. You know, it's followed and we will, we will achieve guaranteed income. Um, but what I can tell you for certainty is that the grassroots movement the policy folks, there really is a slew of other stakeholders, nonprofits who are doing good work, not just the old kind of paternalistic ones we're used to. They're up for this challenge. They're making these wins every month, not just in New York City and San Francisco, great places, but we need wins more than that. But in Nebraska, in Utah, and together, we really, I believe it in full sincerity, will make direct cash, not budget workshops, not more services, but put direct cash in the hands of carers. People, you know, we're never asked what we want. We're just assumed that it's just assumed policy assumes to just get us out of the house uh, so we can get a job and be part of the working class is that we're not doing anything already at home that's important. And we're never asked what we wanted how we spend our time, or about the resources we have or don't have, or about our relationships with those we care for. So Selma and Nina envisioned a survey that would ask mothers and caregivers for the first time, we think, of different generations and in different genders and in different countries, what they wanted. So the working group of the Global Women's Strike began working on this survey in February of 2021. We chose questions that we had been uh, from surveys we had all been associated with before, put them together. Um, and we tested the survey in London, Philadelphia, and in Thailand. 
It was translated and made available in English, Spanish, Italian, and Thai. And it was formally conducted from March 2022 through May of this year, 2023. So we just closed the survey a few weeks ago and want to share with you today some of our preliminary findings. The survey was called What Mothers and Other Caregivers Want. 1,065 respondents completed our survey. Respondents are from 50 countries on six continents. Most responses are from the United Kingdom, United States, and Thailand. But we also had responses from Germany, Italy, Brazil, Uruguay, India, Sweden, Scotland, Australia, Spain, Netherlands, Ireland, Canada, Wales, Mexico, Colombia, France, Myanmar, Burma, Switzerland, Fiji, Philippines, Sri Lanka, Venezuela, Argentina, Bangladesh, Guatemala, Indonesia, Kenya, Malaysia, Peru, Northern Ireland, Belgium, Bolivia, Burundi, China, Denmark, Egypt, Hungary, Israel, Palestine, Mongolia, Nepal, the Russian Federation, Singapore, Syria, Tanzania, Trinidad and Tobago, Uganda, and Ukraine. And I list all those because it's just extraordinary that we were able to have get responses from so many different countries. Most of the respondents, respondents identified as women, including trans women. Men, including trans men and non-binary individuals, are also represented. About half of the respondents are white and the other half people of color, Asian, Black, Hispanic, Latinx, Indigenous, and mixed race. The majority are of low or middle income. Findings show that mothers and other caregivers around the world overwhelmingly feel that they do a vital job for society, which requires skills and dedication, but that their work is not valued by society or governments. They do not believe that their children or themselves or people with disabilities or the older people they care for are getting the support they need. More than 80% of respondents say that their caring work as a mother or other family caregiver is a contribution to society that should be paid, for example, through a care income, and that they would be happier and or a better caregiver if they received the recognition and support of an income for caregiving. We had a question at the end of the survey where people could add whatever their comments were, and we got wonderful comments from people all over the world. And a woman from Sweden said, I would make the choice to care for my children over and over again. It's the best time of my life. Hard work, but so worth it. The lack of visibility and remuneration must change. And it's not fair that poverty is the reward of a life spent caring for others. A respondent from Uruguay said it is essential to help mothers financially and emotionally. A non-binary mixed race individual from Germany said if parents, mothers and caregivers were financially compensated for their labor, I would have been able to have a child or children. A respondent from the UK said, I'd like to know how much in terms of money caregivers contribute to the global economy, and then I would like to claim some of that money back. When I was supporting my elderly mother, my son who has additional needs, and my daughter with her children, the adult social care worker did an assessment of me and laughed when it was over, saying it looked like I was saving the NHS, the housing department, adult social care, and the criminal justice system at least 250,000 pounds per year. A respondent from Thailand said, I want the government to recognize the value of caring work, including providing an income and recognition in the Constitution. An Hispanic Latinx respondent from Israel or the West Bank said, I was able to be there for my first child before I separated and got divorced. With my second child, I was just trying to survive as I was separated and was unable to provide and care for him in the same way. I still feel that we both missed something very important. The option to get paid for the work of taking care of my children and missing work is a very important option. Now, everyone was not 
sure about a care income. Some had questions or had never heard about it before. A black woman from the UK said, I've never considered this before. The idea of being paid for the care I give to my children or extended family members who need it. My gut feeling is that it would feel wrong to be paid for this as it should be done willingly and out of love. It's good for thought about recognition for something women have done since the beginning of time. I'll definitely think more about it. Most of the respondents um, to the survey are mothers, nearly half are single mothers. Uh, they believe that the bond between mother and child is vital to the welfare of the child. Just over half of respondents have been solely responsible for the upbringing of their children. And the majority spend more than 40 hours a week caring for children and adults. Many said it was 24 seven. The vast majority breastfed for over six months and the majority for over a year, many for two years or more. Most respondents also have wage jobs and they worry about what's happening to their child or relative when they're away from home. They find it hard to go to work when their child or relative is unwell and they work primarily because they need the money. Respondents report that they would not work the same job or for the same hours if they had no financial pressure and only a few would work full time if they could choose freely. I was surprised to find that respondents from different countries and across many governments all said the same thing, that they did not feel supported by society or their governments. I thought as someone living in the United States and critical of our social policies here, that other countries had it better. But a woman in Sweden or a respondent in Sweden said, in Sweden, we don't have a tax reduction to support a stay at home person or their children. In Sweden, the norm is that you stay at home for about a year and then you go back to work. It is hard to go against the norm as you make yourself so different from all the others and also get rather lonely. It's also quite hard to get the money to last if you try to support a family on one wage. A respondent from Scotland said some kind of caregiving in income would be brilliant, especially for people who do unpaid care for an adult. In Scotland, we have a carer's allowance, but it is such a tiny amount, it is an insult. India does not, this is a respondent from India. India does not recognize the struggle of single mothers and supports the patriarchal social system. Society makes families of single mothers feel insecure. It is a strong belief system that only men and women together can form a family. An Arab woman from Egypt said, I had a better chance 40 years ago than current mothers in my country. At my time, the state offered women better benefits than it does now. Hi, a respondent in Thailand said, I want those authorities to actually... Thank you, just letting you know there's another minute to go. Oh, just a minute. Thank right, you. Let, let thank me, you. I won't spend so much time on those quotes then. Thank you, Kay. Um, we also asked people about um, what they wanted if they were dependent for care. And they said if they were dependent on care for others, 73% of respondents wanted to be cared for at home. And more than 50% wanted to be cared for in their own home or to share a home with their caregiver. For many respondents, especially those in Thailand and Myanmar, they just didn't even understand the question. I mean, there was no choice for them but to care for their own relatives and their own friends who were older. Um, the survey was distributed by the autonomous uh, organizations and networks of the global women's strike through social media, street stalls, leafleting outside schools and at local events. It was entirely voluntary. There were no incentives to fill it in. And I have to close by thanking Liz, Liz Hilton. Um, she was um, part of, well, she was an integral, I can't even imagine the survey process without Liz. Uh, she had a unique humor and intelligence that just kept us all uplifted. Um, she was part of the autonomous group in power in Thailand. And she used the survey as a community building tool. Uh, during the military dictatorship that Nikki described yesterday and be described today, she visited mothers deep in the mountains of rural Thailand to talk to them about their lives as caregivers. Tragically, Liz died in April, just a month before the military dictatorship was defeated and our survey was completed. Um, I know that I speak for others when I say there are no words for how much we miss her. Uh, and I just want to thank the other members of our working group, including Nina, Phoebe, Kay, Tracy, Soldig, Shoda, Pat, Crystal, Nancy, Sarah, and Tanya. And in addition, Nana Frimpong and Christopher Yam, medical students at Drexel University, helped us with uploading the various translations of the survey. And we will be issuing some kind of report as soon as we uh, you know, have a chance to come back from the conference and, and look at it more closely. And thank you very much for your time. 
we are out of time. I would love to thank the organizers of the gathering End Women's Poverty. For more information on the gathering, you can go to globalwomenstrike.net. Uh, please stay tuned for more programming on KPFK and other Pacifica radio stations. If you'd like a copy of today's show, please contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at 1-800-735-0230 or go online to pacificaradioarchives.org. A special shout out and thank you to Jose Benavides for his help in editing uh, today's program. Please stay tuned for more programming. Sojourner Truth will be back on the air next Tuesday. Thank you for listening. You all please stay well and safe. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Thank you.